the opportunity to, to thank uh, several people, our musicians, of course, who've put a lot of work into both Friday evening as well as this morning uh, with some special music for us, and also so many of you who uh, came out yesterday morning for our community Easter egg hunt. Uh, if you weren't there, you need to know, we set out th- more than 3,000 eggs. That's a lot of candy, a lot of sugar flowing through this town right now. Um, maybe some of the energy in this room this morning is from a little extra candy. But uh, so thankful that we, that for you who donated candy, thankful for you who served yesterday, um, that, that created some connections that I know are, are uh, spilling over into this morning. So I'm thankful for that. I um, want you to open your Bibles now and would encourage you to, to do that, to join me in Romans chapter 6. Um, you may have your own Bible, or maybe there's one in the pew in front of you that you could use if you don't have one. And uh, the, uh, if you don't know where that is, Ro- the, Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 6, you can find the page number for the pew Bible in the order of service, and then there's an outline on the back of the worship folder that would help you follow along with what I'm going to be saying this morning. We are now in the latter half of the month of April, and before you know it, we're going to be into May and June, which is the season for graduations and weddings. And naturally, most of us won't be up on the platform. Most of us will be uh, just watching and, and celebrating and probably remembering. I mean, if you're at a graduation ceremony and you finished high school or college back in the day, uh, at some point you're going to think back to your own graduation. Probably something like, glad I don't have to wear that funny hat today. Um, if you're at a wedding ceremony and if you've been married, at some point you're going to think back to your wedding day, and I hope you can say, I do it all over again. Maybe that kind of recollection happened to you a few minutes ago. Uh, when Micah was baptized, we were all watching and celebrating uh, this important step in his life. I hope you were also remembering your baptism. Not so much like, I'm glad I don't have to get wet today. More like, I do it all over again. If you're a Christian, maybe you need some help in understanding why your baptism still matters today. It's the same reason that that Good Friday and Easter Sunday make all the difference on plain old Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We're going to learn all about that in our passage this morning, Romans 6, verses 1 to 14, and I would love for you to follow along as I read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." I thought I'd hear at least one amen. Anybody, anybody like that? Is that good stuff? I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe it'll be more interesting later on. We'll, we'll, keep, we'll, keep, we'll press into this. Yeah, even though you're coming off the sugar high, I guess, that's where we're at. Let's, let's get into this. Even though we're not reviewing the story of Jesus' resurrection, I hope you can see this as a belief you can build on. Here's the theme for the day. If you are united with Christ, then sin and death no longer reign over you. Yeah, that's right. If you are united with Christ, then sin and death no longer reign over you. We're going to break this down into three parts starting here. Part one, united with Christ. In baptism, a believer is united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, if you were with us on Friday night... Uh, we, we looked at the end of chapter 5 where Paul taught us ever since Adam's sin, the very first human being, ever since Adam's sin, death reigned over every human being. But Christ's death broke the reign of death because of his sacrifice. We are given a righteous standing before God as a gift of his grace so that Paul could say in Romans 5 verse 20, just a little bit before our passage, where sin increased grace abounded all the more. And here is where someone could jump to a wrong conclusion. Okay, if if God's mercy, grace, and love are on display as He forgives sinners, and God is glorified as He shows the world His mercy, grace, and love, then should we keep on sinning so that, that grace may abound? And Paul says, No way. What are you you talking about? Just because God's grace never runs out, just because God's grace never falls short, never comes up short, that doesn't mean that we keep on lying, cheating, stealing. You can't go on in idolatry and immorality taking forgiveness for granted. No. It's never right to do wrong. Paul could have used that very simple argument. It's, It's never right to do wrong. But he actually gives us something more profound and more powerful in what he tells us coming up. So instead of following that logic, jumping to the wrong conclusion, Paul starts with the proper conclusion and then works his way backward in the logic. So the the right conclusion, uh, a Christian doesn't keep on sinning. Why? Because we've died with Christ. We've died to sin, excuse me. We died to sin when we were united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we died to sin when we were united with Christ in baptism, he says. Oh, now that's a, I mean, we've just seen a baptism. Okay, so in one sense, we we all know what we're talking about. And yet, I imagine that even in this room, a relatively small group of people, but there are a lot of backgrounds, even Christian backgrounds. There's a lot of Christian traditions over the centuries since Jesus 
traditions and denominations that do baptism differently, that answer the, the who, why, what, where, and when about baptism differently. Uh, some of it, those are just different traditions. Some of it are, are different interpretations of what's going on and what baptism is about. I, I can't, you, know, you don't want me to try to explain all the different views and all the, I, let me explain where, how I understand it, and you can hold it up against Scripture and see what you think, all right? Th- read through the book of Acts, the story that of the Bible that picks up after Jesus was raised and ascended to heaven. The work of the apostles carrying on the mission and the message of Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, over and over, when his first followers uh, would call other people to respond to the gospel, to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, they will mention, the apostles would mention some combination of repentance, faith, and baptism. They don't always mention all three of those, but they'll mention usually at least two of those in some kind of combination. For example, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching, telling people about Jesus, and people get, you get to the end of the sermon and people are saying, what, what do we do with this? What do we do with this message? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Later verse says, so those who received his word were baptized. A response to the message of Jesus, and the response, uh, again, implied here is faith, and, and what he called them to do, repent and be baptized. Now, just being baptized without repentance and faith won't do anything for you, as if maybe you were sitting a little too close to the baptistry this morning and got a little, splashed a little water and like, whoops, I guess you're a Christian. No, that's, not, that's not how it works. But, but on the other hand, if Peter and Paul would have been surprised, would be alarmed if you said, oh, I want to be, I want to be saved. I'd like to have my sins forgiven. I want to follow Jesus. And, and as if you're standing at the, the menu board at Culver's, you're like, um, faith, yeah, yeah, I like faith. Um, repentance, eh. Um, baptism, no, no, ooh, no, not baptism. The, the apostles would have been surprised. They would have been alarmed if we treated it that way. Why? Because baptism is meant to give tangible expression to that invisible repentance and faith. In some sense, I would suggest to you that those are not three things, repentance, faith, baptism. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin of conversion. Repentance, turning away from the old life. Faith, turning to the new life with Christ. And baptism, picturing the whole thing. All right? It's kind of like when a, a young couple comes and, and asks uh, me, do we, do we really have to get married? I mean, do we really need that, that piece of paper um, to, to, be, to be married? Well, to be sure, you don't need to spend thousands, tens of thousands, huh, uh, tens of thousands on a lavish ceremony, an extravagant reception, an exotic honeymoon. None of those things will make you married or keep you married. You just, you, none of those things will make you married or keep you married. But on the other hand, just sleeping together doesn't make you married either. Any more than sitting in church makes you a Christian, getting splashed with water from the baptistry. Now, there, there is a purpose to the ceremony, and it marks, a, in a public, visible way, a new allegiance, a new relationship that gives you a new identity, not just that she will take on his name, so now that they share one united 
identity, but, but each has a new identity. He is now a husband. She is now a wife. And as that, with that new relationship and the new identity, you have a new responsibility. That, that ceremony is a public declaration of your committed love. Let it be known. We are forsaking all others. I'm forsaking all others to give myself to you. That's, that's what the ceremony is for. We need that kind of clarity in marriage and, and in our covenant relationship with Jesus. There is a purpose to the ceremony that we had earlier this morning. It marks a new allegiance a new relationship that gives a new identity and a new responsibility. And just as marriage creates a union beyond explanation, a believer becomes one with Christ. See the end of Ephesians 5 for the, the picture of, of the church, the God's people as one with Christ, as a bride with a groom. Now, I can't explain everything about that union all that it is or how it works. But I can tell you what Paul says about it here in Romans 6. United with Christ, we die with him and we will be raised with him. We're going we're to explain more of what that means to die with him and to rise with him in the remaining two points. But for now, I want you to see how this marks the end of something old and the beginning of something new. This is true for marriage as well, but let's use a different example. Let's say you just turned 18. And you decide you want to serve your country. You've weighed the cost. You've thought about it, prayed about it. You talked with mom and dad. You're ready. You head down to the recruiter. You do the paperwork. They do all the screening. You, you, you sign your name. You take the oath. You now have a new allegiance. You are no longer an independent individual. You're part of something bigger. And there is a new identity reflected in a new haircut and a new uniform. And there is a new responsibility to defend your country. Things are different now. You're in the army. Becoming a Christian means your life is bound up with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 and following puts it this way. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Think the cross. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live, you and me, believers, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A couple of verses later, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, getting baptized is not the main point of this passage, not the main point of this message. This passage is written to believers, assuming that they have been baptized, have been united with Christ. And building on that foundation, we can get somewhere. But, but let, maybe let's stop, though, to say, do, do you have that foundation? That foundation of faith and repentance that has been expressed in baptism. Some believers have never been baptized. Some, I imagine, in this room. Can I put it to you this way? How will you ever be able to stand with Jesus in a hostile culture if you're not even willing to get a little wet in front of people who love you 
and would celebrate that, that act with you, who would be out there affirming and encouraging and, and, and celebrating and remembering. And in that act of you taking that step, others are, are encouraged. They're, they're reaffirming their own commitment to Jesus as they remember their baptism. They're renewing their own vows, so to speak, in that moment. Why wouldn't we? Make us fill the tank again. Let, let's, let's, let's see you follow Jesus in that way. We'll all be the better for it. Give us all the benefit when you raise your banner. I'm with Jesus. And if you've taken your stand with Christ, then we, then we can build on that. And that's where we're going next. That means if you've taken your stand with Christ, that means you are, part two, dead to sin. If you have died with Christ, you have been set free from slavery to sin. You know about Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what we've been celebrating these past few days. And for Jesus, it was not merely a physiological experience. Yes, he, there, was, there were biological things happening. He died. His, his body expired. But there were spiritual ramifications. He died. Jesus died for our sin. And Paul said that if we are united with Christ through our repentance and faith, as expressed in baptism, then we too have died. But in this, we're not talking about physical death. We're, we're all breathing here today. Uh, um, we too died with respect to sin, but a bit differently than Jesus did. Jesus died for sin. We died to sin. You follow? Jesus died for sin, for our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus died for sin. We die to sin, to the sin that wants to rule over us. We get all that in verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to read that again, and I'm going to carry it into verses 6 and 7, where we're going to camp out for a while. I hope that going through this, it's okay, the pieces are starting to to come together. You're hearing what he's saying. So back to verse 1, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now focus here. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Maybe if you're looking at what I'm looking at, the, the English Standard Version, there's different English translations of the scriptures that were written originally in, in uh, ancient Hebrew and Greek. But, uh, so maybe you're looking at something a little bit different, but maybe you see a footnote here that says, uh, our old self is more literally, in the original language, our old man. And, and newer English translations, tr- trying to avoid confusion, uh, old man, that, that old man is in us, uh, it's, it's saying yourself, your, your old way of life, and it's not just men, of course, it's referring to women too, and unfortunately this is, and this is part of the challenge in translation, in an effort to be more precise, uh, let, let's avoid misunderstanding, um, you can lose maybe something of the links, the connections, the play on words. So remember the end of chapter 5, we looked at Friday. 
by, uh, well, 5, verse 19. Maybe you can see it there on the page. By, one, by the one man's disobedience, Adam sinned in the garden, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus' death on the cross, the many will be made righteous. We said Friday, all of human history turns on these two men. So also, when it comes to the great turn in your life, personally, your old man, don't think elderly male, think, think the you you used to be. That's what we're talking about, the old man. The you you used to be. When you came to Christ, the old you had to die. Why? Pay attention to the, the purpose that's expressed in this verse. The, the purpose in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the purpose. Think, think with me. Sin is not just the bad things that you do. It's not just the, you know, the, the bad behavior, things that you, when you broke the rules, broke the law. Sin is not just that. Paul talks about sin here in these verses like it's a master who has you under its control. Sin rules and reigns over you. Apart from Christ, it gives the orders and you obey. No wonder, no wonder we, we so often feel shame for our sin. Because we know what we're doing is wrong, we know what it is foolish, we know that it is self-destructive, and yet we obey. We obey the bottle. We obey the needle. We obey the online shopping cart. We obey the porn site. We, we obey. It, it calls and we obey because we're slaves. It has power over us. It is ruling us and we hate ourselves for it. And yet, here we go, another day. But don't you know, Christian, the old you was crucified with Christ, nailed on the cross. When you, when you came up out of the waters of baptism, the old you was nailed to the cross. The old you was left in the tomb like Jesus' grave clothes. It's still theirs. So you don't have to be a slave anymore. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Again, another footnote, if you're looking at, again, uh, another attempt by translators in a tricky passage to help us avoid confusion or misinterpretation and give them credit. They're not trying to slip something past you. They put a footnote here. They're saying, like, this was tough. You could have gone this way. You could have gone this way. We put it like this because we think it is a, uh, it's a legitimate um, way of putting it, um, trying to help you avoid misunderstanding. But because if you look at the footnote, the same is the word translated set free is the same that's been used earlier in Romans for justified. Like, oh, that's uh, that. Remember, we've been talking about justification being given a righteous standing before God so that when you come before the final judgment, you're not condemned, you're declared righteous. You, you're, you're not found guilty. You're not consigned to hell, but you're welcomed into glory because you've been justified. Now, here, here's why they, I think they translated it differently, because it, it would be really easy to read this then if you, say, if you read this as, for the one who has died has been justified from sin. They, they don't want you to think, well, if you die to sin, then you will be justified. You see how that, why that would be a problem? 
because then I would be preaching this morning, folks, you got to die to sin. Folks, you got you to stop sinning, and you got you to kill the sin, and then, then maybe you'll pass the judgment. Wait, wait, wait a minute. That doesn't, wait, we know that's not, and this is why they're like, okay, we don't want that misunderstanding. That goes completely against everything that we've heard from Paul up to this point. So what does it mean? How does the word justified fit in this verse in such a way that it could also mean set free? Of course, there's a flow of thought. Uh, you're no longer enslaved to sin. You're set free from sin. How does it work? The best way I think I can explain this verse, and I think it may hopefully make this little digression worthwhile, um, is to paraphrase it this way. The person who has died with Christ in union with him is a person who has been justified by faith in him. And if you are justified, if you have been declared righteous as a gift of God's grace, then sin cannot accuse you at the final judgment. Sin holds no threat over you. Sin has no more claim on you. Anybody, anybody good with that? All right. Now, that's, how this, that's how saying this Christian is justified from sin is another way of saying you are no longer under sin's rule or reign. You are no longer enslaved. You've been set free. Now, many pastors before me have, have tried to tie it all together in this way. Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for our sin, and, and often Christians focus on that, and we figure that, well, we've got that taken care of. Well, I mean, we're good, right? If Jesus paid the penalty for our sin... Um, there, the, the debt is paid. There's no more condemnation. I, I, I'll, I'll pass the final judgment. I'm, I'm home free. I'm good. But please understand, Romans does not, did not stop with the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. End of book. Go home. It's not, it didn't stop there. His work does not stop there. Jesus is so much more than a ticket out of hell. If you are united with Christ in repentance and faith, as expressed in baptism, you have a new allegiance. You've got a new identity. You've got a new relationship that gives you a new responsibility. And then Jesus' death and our dying with him also deals with the power of sin. That's what we're talking about in this point. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin over you. Don't we need that too? Because it... it the only way dealing with just the penalty of sin works is if someday you say, oh, God, I see I'm a sinner. Uh, would you forgive me on the basis of what Christ did, not on what I do? I know I couldn't, I couldn't stand before you and hope that I could ever match up to your beauty and perfection. I know I've failed. I've, I've, I've gone against you. I've ignored you, and I've rejected you. I've disobeyed you, and so I, I don't have a chance. But God, I'm, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, his death, and he takes care of the penalty. And, and if at that point he just, okay, okay, here we go. Let's, let's take you up to heaven. That would be enough. But that's not where we're at, and that's not how it works. We, we live in the time between our faith and the beginning of God's work in us and the final realization of all that. And so we need God to give us the power to live right now in a right way to honor the Savior who has redeemed us, to honor the one to whom we have entrusted our lives. Now, here's a very, very important caveat. Just because Jesus paid the penalty in full and deals decisively with the power of sin, penalty and the power, it doesn't mean that there's no longer the presence of sin that we have to deal with. We, we, and... 
folks, uh, let's just say right up front, in case, in case anybody had the idea, just because we, you know, looked a little nicer today, that Christians are, oh, they're something special, something better than everybody else. Like, this, this isn't doing it. We're, just, we're people that are susceptible to sin. We fail, we mess up, but we're, we're also the people who say, we found a place, we found the one who brings forgiveness and can bring us new life, can deal with the penalty and the power even as sin, we still deal with sin's present, sin's presence among us, okay? Here's the thing. As the passage con- continues and concludes, we can live as if sin still reigns. His power has been broken. Sin and death, power broken, but we can still si- live like they're in charge. So, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is part three. Alive to God. If you have risen with Christ, you have been given new life to serve God. So, uh, back up there in verses 8 to 10, follow Paul's argument. All of this depends on Easter. All of this depends on the empty tomb. We say we believe it, part of our creed, this is our doctrinal statement, we believe Jesus rose again, but do we believe it in a way that makes a difference in our lives? Do we believe that Jesus was not simply you know, resuscitated, like he passed out on the cross, they thought he was dead, they put him in the tomb, and a little bit later he kind of, and he kind of gets up and staggers out of the tomb in weakness. No. The Bible said he was resurrected to glory, a new body, not susceptible to weakness, pain, or death anymore. That's what, that's what daffodils breaking through the ground and blooming in beauty are pointing to. That's what baby chicks breaking through their eggshells point us to. That's the renewal of the earth. Every spring is only a foretaste of the new life in Christ. And if it happened to him, we believe, we know it will happen to us. But, here, but here's the clincher. The point is, for this text, his point is not that one day we too will have resurrected bodies. Praise God, that's our faith as well. Anybody hurting today? Anybody got some little achy? Anybody, the, the seat feels a little hard? Like, when's he wrapping up? Like, I'm going to be stiff getting out of this chair? Yeah, or, and I know we've got worse than that. We know, we know we've got cancer in, in this group. We know we've got people who are recovering, trying to get back on their feet, trying to get their strength. And we want those new bodies. Amen. But the word here, the word here is that the promise of new life that we have in Jesus makes a difference now, before the resurrection, before he comes back, before we, we, we shed these broken bodies to be whole for the first time. The promise of new life 
that we have in Jesus makes a difference now, but we have to press in to this new life. Verse 11 again, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That word consider there in verse 11 is the same word we saw, if you've been with us through the series, in chapter 4, um, multiple times, quoting Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, considered, reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, this consider, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It's not, well, you know, just pretend. Just kind of squint your eyes and hold your head at a certain angle. Pretend that you're dead to sin and alive to God. No, this is a, this is a thoughtful, intentional recognition of the way things are, the way things truly are, and the way things are going to be. That's what we're doing here when we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Jesus' death and resurrection have changed the world. Sin and death are everywhere, yeah, so they seem to reign, but their iron grip has been broken. Now, I try not to use too many well-worn sermon illustrations that maybe you've heard, if you're an old-timer, you've heard dozens of times from other preachers, but this one is so helpful, I don't, and I don't even know who first used it. Uh, it's, it's going back to, the, to think about the begin, uh, middle of the 20th century, World War II. And in, in that war, when uh, Hitler's Germany controlled virtually the entire continent of Europe, the tide of the war turned on, on a day that we call D-Day, the, the, the invasion of the Allies at Normandy on June 6, 1944. Now, the fighting at that point was far from over. I mean, they had to get from the beach to Berlin. The fighting was far from over, and Germany didn't surrender until May 8th, 1945. So VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, came nearly a year after D-Day, the invasion in Normandy. Now, after, so after that invasion, many more battles to be fought, but the war was as good as won. At that point, when they, when they were able to break that perimeter, when they broke through, war was as good as won. The tragedy for us is some Christians act as if sin and death still reign. You're obeying its authority. You answer when it calls. You're acting like slaves when you've been set free. But the tide was turned when Jesus died on the cross. And when he rose from the grave, the war was as good as won. That's what we're, that's what we're holding to today. You need to know, Satan is still fighting. He's still fighting, but he is in retreat. Sadly, some of the hardest fighting in World War II happened after D-Day. Because when you know you're losing, you do desperate things. Like a lot of us, uh, some people, worried about Putin right now as he is losing, uh, but what's he going to do now, right? Well, Christian, when it comes to the spiritual battle you are in, don't give up the fight. The war is as good as won. Temptations may seem strong. The world may seem so dark. So much ground may seem to have been lost. But has Jesus risen from the dead? Christ is risen. And we could respond, we are risen. Let's try that. Christ is risen. We are risen indeed. Yeah, that's true. 
We are dead to sin and alive to God. Maybe you need to be telling yourself that Christ is risen. We are risen indeed. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And all that starts even before we get those resurrected bodies. Ever since Easter, we are living between the turning point and the final victory. Much, much more to here to say about these verses, verse 13 especially, presenting yourself not to sin, to serve it, but to God, to serve him. And Paul continues this theme throughout the rest of the chapter, and so we're going to spend more time with that next week. I hope we'd, we'd love to have you uh, join us again if you're in town and you don't have another church to be in. But we'll look at that next week, but let me close with that last verse, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, he hasn't been talking about law all, all in these verse 14 verses, and grace, that was back in verse 1. Well, yes, he's picking up, he's circling back to the issue of verse 1, which, of course, was, came on the heels of, of the discussion of the law at the end of verse 5. So law and grace, circling back, the law that God gave to Israel through Moses, uh, you can think about it as the Ten Commandments, but it's really the whole of the first five books of the Old Testament, and the law did not deal with the pervasive problem of sin. Sin, we said on Friday, was, was something like a global pandemic that this world has never known since. I mean, any other pandemic you, you've got is just a pale reflection of the pandemic of sin. Started with one man, spread to all, and so death has spread to all people. We talk about what, what's the death rate? What's the infection rate? Death rate from, the, from sin, 100%. That was what happened with Adam, and the law that God gave didn't stop it. It didn't squelch it. It didn't fix the sin problem. If anything, because uh, we were so infected with sin, even the law outside of us saying, don't do this, and it just stirred up more rebellion in us. Uh, the, The law made, Paul said, the law made sin increase. But instead, now Paul says, Instead of the convoluted logic that says, well, where sin increases, God's grace seems to abound all the more, so let's sin some more. No, we're not under law. We're under grace, so we won't let sin and death reign anymore. It's not going to rule over us anymore. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 56 and 57, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So folks, if you're here today, and you're a believer, repentance, faith, baptism, then then you're united with Christ. If you're united with Christ, then sin and death no longer reign over you. And if you're here today, and you're like, I don't know I don't, I, there's a lot that I don't understand of what you've been talking about, but I think I want it. I think I need it. Folks, we, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you begin that journey in, a, in some sense in the way that, that Micah did today. We'd love to help you and to walk with you in that journey of knowing Christ. But if you know him, if you are trusting him, you are celebrating his death and resurrection, not just because it happened long ago, but because it makes a difference in your life today and tomorrow and in your eternity then folks, don't just look for that resurrected body. Don't just hold out for heaven. Start living now as, you, as if, except it's a reality, as, as though you live under Christ's reign. Because you do. Look at your life now as within the kingdom of God. Because you are. Yes, sin and death seem to be 
prevailing. They're still fighting. But the war is as good as won. And the earth is the Lord's. So are you, if you're in him. Let's pray. Oh God, we are asking that you would do a work in us through Jesus Christ to make us a new kind of people. Not that we could brag or boast in our self-righteousness, but that we could bring glory to you as we are a different kind of people. A people of hope, people of courage, a people of integrity, people of honesty, people of mercy, people ready to serve and to sacrifice like our Savior did for us, a people that have courage because we know that the war is won. And God, if if you call us to do battle in our hearts and with the evil that rages around us, we pray that you'd give us the hope of life that no one can take away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.